Here we go, here we go. Hold your hands, close your eyes, let's pray. Here we go. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Amen. Last page of the bulletin says there's a voters meeting scheduled two weeks from today in this room. You have to sign in in order to vote, so if you'd come upstairs immediately after the service, that would be fine. Uh, the call committee is going to present you with the name, the Reverend Eamon Ferguson, and uh, it's a great committee. They're, they've actually worked really hard over such a long period of time. They know each other well. A lot of good work gets done. So uh, thanks to Pastor Nelson and then to Stephen Nyquist, who chairs it. They've done a, a really fine job. Come next week. Or I'm sorry, come in two weeks and uh, you, know, you can hear the story and, and see what you think and vote. If you have questions, of course, before then, see Pastor Nelson or Stephen Nyquist. I'm sure they have answers. That okay? Good? Everybody good? So my question for you is, what's the first thing you thought about when you woke up this morning? If you just can, can you remember what the first thing is you thought about? This is mildly diagnostic, but... Uh, just, just think about what you thought about, and, and then maybe the second thing as well. Nope, I don't want you to shout it out, because frankly, what some of you are thinking about would hurt my faith. So, uh, <laughs> one of the things that's so interesting, the world seems to have calmed down just a touch, uh, but it's still fairly grim. Uh, if you don't believe me, just pick up any large city newspaper and read it cover to cover every word today and you'll be thoroughly depressed by the time you're done. And one of the things you need to ask yourself, I think, is why this happens. And I could certainly run you through several desperate and depressing things, uh, but you, my suspicion is that you can do that on your own, so you don't really need me for that. But the question is, you know, why does the world seem so kinked up, so out of step? And I want to try to suggest to you that, it, at least beginning, it's a question of desire and identity. So, and these things are, you know, well cared for in Scripture. Uh, later, I'm going to say to you that it's a matter of love and hate, and then even later that it's a matter of God and idols. But at least let's start where we are, with how you wake up in the morning, or what scares you, or what depresses you. Um, what I'm going to argue is that we're sort of desperate, and we really don't know who we are anymore. We've lost our story, and so we're the victim of whatever meets us on the street, whatever comes into our ears, whatever we watch, and you all need to be protected against that, or things will add, end up very, very badly. You know, you know this already, that at our deepest levels, we're of ourselves base and uh, diminished and unsatisfied. And so because of that, people search rather relentlessly. It may not be obvious, but people are yearning or questing in some way for something that would satisfy them. And I would suggest to you that you can tell the story of the world in this way right now. The, the world is a desperate place. There's a war in every corner. You know, leadership is crumbling all over the place. Uh, already when people talk about the election, they talk about it in the most negative of tones and you know something that's going to have to be endured and perhaps could be worse and I think you know in regular ways the things that are completely delightful or holy faith family the church uh, are under attack if you get Christianity today they, they you know they every year at the end of the year they run or at the beginning of the year they run 
you know, the number of attacks on Christians, Christian places over the last year, I mean, it numbers in the thousands, right? Things like, you know, in Nigeria where churches were attacked and on Easter morning and hundreds of Christians were killed. It doesn't even make the news. You sort of go, you know, what's up with all that? So anyway, the world is, uh, and I don't need to convince you about this too much, a sort of a def- desperate place. And I'm going to suggest to you that that's because our desires are all out of whack. So point number one, Jesus' question, what are you looking for? Of course, I'm going to also suggest to you that some very quiet and intimate conversations with Jesus, conversations that are not very complicated, can actually help you very much. In fact, they can soothe you and let you survive even if the world goes to ashes. So John 1.35, these are, you know, you've heard this text before, but, but just kind of listen to this. The next day, John the baptizer was standing with two of his disciples. He looked at Jesus and he said, behold, that's the guy. That's the Lamb of God. That's the answer to your questions. It's a very nice sermon this morning. Jesus says, the kingdom of God embodied. That was great. The two disciples heard this and they followed Jesus. So you look, you behold, you follow. You look, you see, you follow. Jesus turned, he saw them following and said, what do you want? Or I would say this is the primary question of your life. You know, what do you want? What are you seeking? What would satisfy you? They said, Rabbi, where are you staying? He said, come and see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. It was already about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed was Andrew, that was Simon Peter's brother. He went and he found his brother Simon. He said, hey, we found the Christ. Everything's gonna be okay. We found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon. It's very interesting. Jesus names him. So now look how far we've gone already. It's come and see and stay and find and follow and believe. All these things have happened just in this very short conversation. Then the next day it happens again. Jesus decides to go to Galilee. He finds Philip and he says, follow me, which is not unlike the story for you. He finds you and says, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. They all knew each other. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found the one of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael, famous line, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip says, come and see. You should come and see. So Jesus sees him coming, and then he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile, no deceit. Nathanael perhaps suspiciously says, how do you know me? How do you know anything about me? Jesus says, before Philip called you, I called you first. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answers, Rabbi, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. And Jesus replies, that's small stuff. Because I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. You'll actually see heaven opened and the angels of God going up and down be quite a remarkable feat in itself. You'll see them going up and down, but you'll actually see them going up and down with Jesus as the ladder. So is Jesus as the one who connects or opens or is the string between heaven and earth? 
So just, just kind of hold that. I just, all I want you to do is just hold the story in the simplest form. What are you seeking? And I'd, I'd really want to ask you to ask that about yourselves. It's the most basic question, one of the most basic questions in philosophy, and also, but also in religion. What, what do you want, for goodness sakes? Over the years here, um, I've learned so much from people who've been on committees and people who do different things, uh, different vocations, you know, they work in different places. But one of the things that I've learned is that the questions are relatively the same. So, you know, you're all here for something, but what do you want? I mean, there's no earthly reason why you would come to church this morning. There must be something that you want. There must be something you yearn for, something that's missing something that you hope for, there must be something. Um, you know, one of the great questions I learned, you know, from, from a lawyer, this question, every, every negotiation ends this way, what do you want? Or the KGB, one of the things I've learned from both the Russians I've known and also the Germans who are in East Germany, how do you make sense of all the false flags? How do you make sense of misinformation? How do you make sense of the stuff that you see you know, on X, on TikTok, on Instagram. How do you make sense of the news at night? How do you make sense of this? The great, I mean, this is a great cynical but true question. Who benefits by this? You're trying to figure out what's true. You ask yourself, who benefits? Who has their desires fulfilled by this? If somebody can lie to you and you'll believe them and you'll act in accord, who benefits by that? It's a great question for you to use as you sort of, you know, what do people want? Who benefits by this? Or if you ever go see, and Pastor Nelson alluded to this when he taught over the last few weeks, if you go and see him and you tell him you're troubled, one of the first questions he asks you is, what do you desire? It's classic, you know, Ignatian spirituality. What do you desire? What does your heart hope for? What do you want? This is Jesus' basic question. He chooses disciples like you, and he looks around the room, and he says, what in the world do you want? Now, of course, Jesus is not going to give you anything you want. In fact, he's not going to give you anything but what he has to give. But he'd like you to recognize how broken your heart is, right? How fuzzy your mind is. Jesus would like you to understand where you're starting, and that will help you understand what he brings, basic law gospel stuff for you Lutheran types. What do you hope for? What do you yearn for? What's your quest? Or you could put it this way. Just think for a moment right now. If you could have anything you wanted, just think for a second. If you could have anything you wanted, what would that be? Can you think of it? And then ask yourself whether or not that would be actually good for you. Don't give a pious answer. If you said Jesus, I, I know that's always the church answer, and I hope that's true, but yeah, I think for about 87% of you, we were looking at something else. So, You know, you can also ask it the other way around, which is, and Pastor Nelson did a good job with this too, the, the, the flip side of that. What, the first question is, what do you want? What do you desire? The second is, what scares you to death? What are you afraid of? Just, so just think for a second in your own mind, what are you afraid of? And it's very possible that these two questions, what do you want and what scares you, 
tell you very much about your heart. It tells you about your life. It tells you as the first commandment, the explanation of the first commandment in the large catechism says, tells you what you cling to in life and death, what's your God. It tells you what your love. I mean, you get really great diagnostic questions like, do you love your anxieties more than you love Jesus? It's very possible if your anxieties are the thing that drive you to action. What do you want? What are you scared of? And so why does Jesus ask this? I mean, because Jesus knows our hearts, right? Jesus knows that we're broken. Because we're broken, we're unsatisfied. And we can't fix ourselves. So I'm kind of the middle of the page here. We can't fix the problem because we are the problem. Now this is an old, old story, right? St. Thomas Aquinas. Our hearts can only be stilled by divine good or infinite good. The only thing that will ever satisfy your finite broken heart is the infinite. You know, before him, 600 years or 700 years is Augustine, this famous thing. You've made us for yourself, O Lord. Think of Adam. You made us for yourself, O Lord. And our hearts are restless. Our hearts are broken. Our hearts are unsatisfied until they rest in you. And if you put those next to the joyful part of this story, Jesus says, he looks at people and says, what do you want? And there's a way that it's diagnostic, but there's also a way that it's inviting. What do you want? You know, behind it is, I might have something for you. Or, I think I know what your problem is. I think I know your trouble. Or even, I've experienced what you're experiencing. You think about when Jesus goes to death, and we always say that he was tempted in every way that we were but didn't sin. Part of what that means is he experiences the brokenness, his broken heart. So, you know, what is it that you want? Jesus says, you know, come and see. And Andrew and Nathaniel, this is great, you should see this. And then Jesus says, you've hardly seen anything. So, I'm at the top of a page, but I don't know what page it is. So there you go. It's probably about four in or so. The reason you come to church on Sunday, and the reason you should never miss coming to church on Sunday, is this is the place where you see heaven opened. This is the place where you see that Jesus connects the place where you're sitting with the place that God the Father is sitting. This is the place where the dots get connected. This is the place where we have the chance to be unbroken, at least for a moment. Which is the reason you should never mess church. Here's the weird thing. Our church attendance over the last year, I just read the stuff. I don't go to the meetings anymore. I read the stuff. You know, our church attendance here was up 10% over the last year. So that's like we went from like 32,000 to 35,000. I talked to Kleining about this. He said, yeah, we all knew you were the obstruction. So, <laughs> so it's so always encouraging, uh, you know, to, you know. So, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing. You, so you look at Pastor Nelson, he's looking a little tired. I mean, you should have some mercy on that guy because he is working really long days and really a lot of days. But part of it is, if you have three or 4,000 more visits than you had last year, it's three or 4,000 more times when people want pastoral care.
That's why the meeting in two weeks is super important. There's just like, you know, most churches don't have this problem, but we do. We don't we have so much to do, we don't know what to do. So, you know, you should show up. Anyway, you come to church on Sunday to be reconnected to holiness. Now, what's so interesting about the world and maybe about the church, if you said to most people, are you dissatisfied? Most people would tell you that they are. Most people are restless. If you read, you know, uh, the election polls or the economic polls, or if you, you know, read the press releases from Davos last week, or if you just kind of read the newspaper, it's interesting in every venue, and they're all very, very different. People express a very high level of dissatisfaction with how the world is working. Very interesting, kind of across the board, people are unsatisfied. Um, what's so interesting to me is not, those, not, not that many people are unsatisfied with themselves. Mostly, I'm unsatisfied with you. <laughs> right? When you ask people what they're unsatisfied about, they almost always point to somebody else. And of course, that's the very first story in scripture. We'll get there in a moment. But first, I just want to do a little Lutheran diagnostic with you here from, you know, this is a story that's so good, I gave it to you in the King James Version. Okay, so here you go. Jesus told another parable about people who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and they despised other people. Hey, I'm not the problem. You're the problem. I'm really dissatisfied in the world, but I'm dissatisfied with you. If I could be king, I'd be a really good king, and I could get everything I wanted, and you would have to catch up. Right? Here it is. Two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a publican. And that's just, it sounds so beautiful, a Pharisee and a publican, an elite and a commoner. It's just so beautiful, a proud, a proud person and a humble person a person who thinks they have it all together and a person who's broken. This was pretty much everybody in the world can fall into those two categories. The Pharisee stood up and prayed with himself. It's so interesting. He prayed with himself. Nobody else is going to pray this prayer. <clears throat> God, I thank you. I'm not like everybody else. You know? I mean, you can hear this on the news. You know, we're the, we understand it. All these other people don't understand it. It's on any channel of any persuasion. We understand it. Nobody else understands it. If everybody else could be like me, everything would be okay. Which, of course, is always a lie when the reference point is a human heart. I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this publican. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. The publican standing far off wouldn't even lift up his eyes. Mea culpa, mea culpa. He smote his, smote his breast. Mea culpa. God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because, you know, if you exalt yourself, eventually it's going to catch up with you. You'll be abased. If you make yourself high, eventually you'll be made low. If you make yourself low, eventually you'll be made high. So now all these things are ringing together. Love and hate, pride and humility, right? Publican and Pharisee, restlessness and satisfaction. We suffer when our desires are unmet. And that I don't really have to explain to you. There are things that you want and you don't have, and you suffer. Some are legitimate, some are not legitimate, but 
In general, you know, we wake up in the morning and we say, I wish I had this or that. I wish I could do this. I wish I could make more money. I wish I had a better job. I wish my kids were more behaved. I wish I had kids. I wish I didn't have kids. I wish I had better neighbor. I wish, 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 right? You, you say to yourself, um, and then we're unsatisfied because we don't have enough of whatever we want. But there's also another way to be unsatisfied, which I think we should be more tuned into. And this would be our world. We, the, we're unsatisfied when we settle for less. Most people self-medicate the desires of their hearts. We wake up in the morning and we know something is wrong. We turn on the news, we know something is wrong. We read the newspaper, we go to work, there's something wrong. You feel the tenor of our nation, there's something wrong. You look at schools, there's something wrong. The problem is, or one problem is, that we're willing to settle for less. We're willing to try almost anything to make it go away. We're willing to self-medicate in all its forms. Classically, there are three forms of self-medication, which Jesus normally sees in the first Sunday of Lent, when Satan comes to him and says, your life would be much better if you had more pleasure, more popularity, or more power. And the basic temptations, I don't know if you ever realized it, but monastic vows to um, poverty, chastity, obedience are the opposite of the three temptations that Jesus gets. Did you ever realize that? You have to be kind of careful when things get brushed away like they don't matter. There's always some insight there to think about. So what does Jesus get tempted to? To food, to, to pleasure, to um, popularity. You can jump off and people will say, fabulous, do some more. Be our Messiah. Or the force of being a king. Bow down before me and every kingdom in the world will praise you. Almost all the things that people by nature use to self-medicate can be grouped into those three things. And those th three things are often demonic. Okay, so just here's the thing. Just kind of think it through, right? Again, I just, you could test this. If you went home and read the newspaper or watched the news for two hours, you could test this today. How do people, how do people cope with excess, with sex, with microdosing their way through the day, with breaking all the rules they can, with dominating other people, with violence, with enforcing their will, with war, right? With campaigns, with lies that promote themselves. You just, you just, just test yourself. See if you can find anything that falls outside popularity, power, and uh, pleasure, the demonic things that come to Jesus every Lent. So I, this seems, even in my head, I think to myself, I've made this too complicated. I can make it really simple for you. You wake up in the morning and you want something. 
you have a desire. That desire will either be satisfied by something that is holy or unholy. It's, it's easy, right? Holiness takes a very specific form. The kingdom of God embodied in Jesus the Christ. Unholiness takes zillions of forms. So many that we're deceived. We try things. We settle for things. We delude ourselves. We tell ourselves it's all going to be okay. Some people's whole lives are spent going from one thing to another to another. And none of them have anything to do with, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is it that you want? What do you want? What do you want in your own life? What do you want in family? What do you want in the church? What do you want in your job? What do you want in this nation? What do you want the world to be? What is it that you want? What do you want for eternity? What do you want? And ask yourself if the answer is something that is holy, something that is divine, something that is Christ-like. And frankly, you know, maybe I've leaned too far in the one way. We probably need to apply this to the church more rigorously than we apply it to other people. Because the church is a mess. So, just be aware when you um, have unmet desires or when you settle for less. Neither of those are the right answer. Jesus knows there's nothing short of heaven that will satisfy our desires, not our bodies, our hearts, our minds, our souls, our beings. So if we're going to get to heaven, we need a rabbi, we need a messiah, we need a teacher, we need a ladder. We need a Christ, we need a redeemer, we need a way, a truth, a life. We need holy things. So, I'm on the page that says, <laughs> let's take our desires seriously. It's strange, I've been thinking about this for months, and then this week, um, this is always good when this happens, you, I came across two or three articles where other people are thinking about the very same things. But this was particularly good. Because I really, you know, one of the things over the years I've learned is that, and I, I can feel it this morning, I'm rusty. You know, I feel like I'm trying to say too much too soon. And so the, the key to all these things are answers that are two or three or four words long. I mean, what do you, what do you want? What do you hope for? What do you love? The interesting thing about Jesus is his answers are so compact. They're so simple. It's just it's kind of remarkable. So look at this. Every desire we're given in life exists to enable us to understand the purpose for which we're living. The dynamic of desire is a constant refining challenge. And this is complicated, but Basically this, your desires tell you who you are. Am I truly content in my life with just, and this is crazy when I come to this, pleasure, possessions, popularity, and power? Am I really, does that really make me content? I would just wish you'd think about yourself. I'll try to think about myself too. If you had all the power you wanted and all the stuff you wanted and all the praise you wanted and all the pleasure you wanted, would you be happy? 
The answer is absolutely, positively no. And if you don't believe me, I can introduce you to scads of rich, powerful people who are miserable. Desire is given to us precisely in order to know who Jesus is. Just how much Jesus can fill our lives, just how much Jesus can give us satisfaction that each time is even greater. Otherwise, life diminishes and fades. This is the reason why Jesus, all through the Gospel of John, keeps reproposing his initial question, keeps targeting desire, but in different forms to different people. So he's going to ask you in different ways than perhaps he asked me, but look at these examples. Really short, close conversations. To the Samaritan woman at the well, he says, will you give me a drink? Will you listen to me? Help me, have mercy on me, obey me. Will you give me a drink? Right, that's all packed in there. To the man who's sick for 38 years, Jesus says, do you want to get well? First, it seems like a completely stupid question, right? The guy's been by the pool for 38 years. Hey, do you want to get better? Of course I want to get better. There's more behind the question than do you want to just get better? Would you like your desires to be met? Would you like a new kind of life? Would you like to leave all this behind? Would you like to know how the world works? Would you like to give your life to something greater? Would you like to see something divine? It's all in there. To the 12 possibly scandalized like the disciples who leave after Jesus, who leave Jesus after he proclaims himself to be bread of life, he says, do you want to leave me too? Almost everybody who's been in the church has been faced with this the disillusionment of a congregation or a denomination, you know, the failure of its leaders in the most heinous ways, false doctrine, boredom. And then, I mean, this is spooky, right? And in words chillingly similar to those in the first gospel, and in words chillingly similar to those first ones of the gospel, Jesus says to the soldiers in the garden, what do you want? What would fulfill the desire of your heart? And of course their answer is to kill you. What would make you happy tonight? To kill you. Go home early, get paid, wake up tomorrow, do it again. Startling. If we do not answer from the depth of our desire, then our next step may well be to send Jesus to his passion. This is a terribly important question. If you answer it one way, Jesus lives and lives in you. If you answer it in another way, Jesus dies and you may never see him again. Right, the great quote from C.S. Lewis in the bulletin today, you know, people who go to heaven will say, I've always been there. People who go to hell will say, I've always been there. Turn the page. So in some very real sense, and maybe this is you know, the simplest way to say it, in some very real sense, our desires define us. Which another way I've always said this to you is most people I know hit what they aim at. I know, I, I've had some very good friends, smart people disagree with me. I'm convinced most people in life hit what they aim at. You just didn't know what you were aiming at. Most people in life get what they want. Most people in life hit what they were aiming at. They're just not very good at aiming. Don't know which way to aim. They can't shoot straight. Most people hit what they're aiming at. So part of the question, another way to put this is, what are you aiming at? 
Right? What do you want? What will it take to get from here to there? What are you willing to do? What are you willing to give up? Do you really think this is worth it? On days when you don't care, can you still care? The things we love tell us who we are. So just this first bit. Um, I would just like you to think about, maybe for a few weeks, maybe when you go home today, just think about, if I say think about desire, it sounds too highfalutin. Just think about this. What do you want? Can you answer that question? Not publicly. Just like, what do you want? What do you want for yourself? What do you want for your family and your friends? What do you want for this nation and the world? What do you want? If you can just think about that for a little while, it'll help kind of going forward. Because at some point we need to execute. At some point we need to figure out what will get us from A to B. So what is it? What is B? What do you want? Right? Work backwards from what you want to where you are now. So just, so just kind of hold that as the first question. The second question goes with it, which is, who told you you were naked? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. He said to the woman, did God really say? Did God really say that you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? She replied to the serpent, hey, we can eat everything. But God said, don't eat the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. Don't touch it, you will die. God was giving definition to their lives. You're my child, you're my friend, you're my creation. I made you with my own hands from the dirt. Your first taste was my breath. I love you. Don't touch that. The serpent said to the woman, you won't read, you, you won't die. He redefines her. God says, you'll die. The serpent says, you won't die. This is not unlike every other choice you have in your life. Will you die or won't you die? Who defines you? Who gives you your identity? Who tells you who you are? Whom do you believe? Whom do you follow? Who is your rabbi? Whose disciple are you? Whom do you value? Who is your judge? Who will you answer to? Who are you? basic question of life. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be a God. You'll be like God. Redefinition. You're not a human being. You're a God. You're not a man. You're a God. You're not a woman. You're a God. Gods get to do what they want. Congratulations. So verse six, she believed the devil. She saw the tree was good. It was a delight to the eyes. Look, her desire, pleasure. The tree was good to be desired to make her wise. 
power. She took the fruit and she ate it. She gave some to her husband and he ate it, and their eyes were opened. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is the most horrifying story. This is, this is as bad as the crucifixion. It's a horrible story. God comes for their normal walk in the cool of the day. God wants to come near and talk things over, just like he always does with his children. He wants to love them and satisfy them. Tell them who they are and meet all their desires. God came to walk with them in the cool of the day. God came for a chat, for a very close conversation. Hey, let's chat. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So they hid themselves from the presence, from the nearness of God. But the Lord called out and said to him, where in the world are you? Come on, we walk at this time every day. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was scared. I was afraid because I was naked. And God said to Adam, who redefined you? Whom do you believe? Who gives you your identity? Who's your rabbi? Who do you listen to? Who do you care most about? Whose approval do you desire? Who will meet your needs? Who told you that? An alien voice, right? And then there's a round of blaming. The woman told me, and then the woman says, the serpent told me. And you know how this story ends. The Lord sorts it out. And actually with a great kindness, there in verse 15, I will put hostility. This is war. Enmity is the word for, you know, war breaking out, constant irritation. I will put hostility in the way that we talk about war as hostilities. This is going to go badly. Because either I define you or Satan defines you, good defines you or evil defines you, love defines you or hate defines you. You're either a master or you're a servant. You're either the creator or a creature. And someday there'll be a reckoning. And you should take comfort in this. Someday the Lord is going to sort it all out. And when he does, it will be fabulous. But until then, hostilities, right? And then you know how the rest of this goes to Adam, to Eve, and then there's a little huddle in verse 22 between the Holy Trinity. What now? What now is the Lord sent them out, distance is created. Sent them out and put an angel, a cherubim, at the door. And this is where you and I live since then. Just a little shorthand diagnostic for you there. The spirit of Satan is the spirit of rebellion. Right? You just might think, think that all the way through. The spirit of disobedience is the spirit of Satan. The spirit of chaos is the spirit of Satan. 
The spirit of rebellion is the spirit of Satan. Every temptation and every sin boils down to a single thing, which is rebellion against God. You can name it in a dozen ways. Pick the one that makes it easiest for you. So I'm asking you to do maybe two things for the next couple of weeks. It's simple. I, may, maybe, I hope I haven't made it hard. You know? you know, What do you want out of life? I mean, you clearly want something. You're here. I'm here too. I'm very clear about some things I want. I'm muddy on some things too. Hoping to get cleared up. What do you want and whom do you listen to? Two really simple questions that will determine really everything. So I've turned the page to where at the top in bold, fortunately this thing, it says God, Satan, other and self, which you'll recognize as, you know, the devil, the world and ourselves. But then I want to leave you with this question. And I find this fascinating, right? So you can see that these are matters of life and death. What do you want? That's a question of life and death. Apparently, you know, what Adam wanted was to eat from the tree, to be a god. What do you want? Right? What do you desire? What do you want? I want to eat that. And who told you that was okay? The Satan did. But see then the third question. Why would you listen to him? This is startlingly important for all of you, especially in America in the last 10 years. If you just think about yourself, why do you listen to the persons you listen to? Why do you do that? Whom do you listen to and why? What is their authority? What is their grip on you? What do they offer you? Why do you care? Is it because you care about power and pleasure and popularity, the great temptations of Jesus? Or is it because you care about the holy way? Who speaks to you? Who defines you? And are they telling you the truth? Will they actually satisfy your longing heart? Satan wants us to self-identify like Adam and Eve did. He wants their identity to come from within, which really came from him. In the end, it doesn't matter which idol you have, yourself or Satan, it doesn't matter which idol you have. If you have an idol, it's the end of you. Uh, because Satan hates you and rebellion always ends in hate. So it boils down to this, and we really have to stop now, but it boils down to this, that Heaven's great goal, um, I'm sorry, Jesus' great goal is to establish heaven on earth and then forever. And Satan's great goal is to establish hell on earth and then forever. And it's really crystal clear how you get to one or how you get to the other. It has to do what you love and whom you listen to. What you love and who defines you. What you love and what you become. So you know, we're almost in Lent. It's a very short epiphany. Ash Wednesday is coming up very quickly. And already you can begin to think about the disciplines of the season and where you will end. But I really hope you'll give some thought to these questions. 
what do you want, whom do you listen to, and why? Kind of, you know, a little bit of self-reflection. We'll get an early start, okay? We've got to go to church. Thanks for the fun. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks very much. See you next time.